Chapter Three of Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal by Sarah J. Richardson. Chapter Three. While in the White Nunnery, I spent most of my time in the nursery, but the name gives one no idea of the place. The freedom and careless gaiety, so characteristic of other nurseries, had no place in this. No cheerful conversation, no juvenile merriment, or pleasurable excitement of any kind were ever allowed. A merry laugh, on the contrary, a witty jest, or a sly practical joke, would have been punished as the most heinous offence. Here, as elsewhere in the establishment, the strictest rules of silence and obedience were rigidly enforced. There were twenty little girls in the room with me, but we were never permitted to speak to each other, nor to any one except a priest or a superior. When directly addressed by either of them, we were allowed to answer, but we might never ask a question, or make a remark, or in any way either by looks, words, or signs, hold communication with one another. Whenever we did so, it was at the risk of being discovered and severely punished. Yet this did not repress the desire for conversation. It only made us more cautious, artful, and deceptive. The only recreation allowed us was fifteen minutes' exercise in the yard every morning and evening. We might then amuse ourselves as we chose, but were required to spend the whole time in some kind of active exercise. If one of our number ventured to sit still, we were all punished the next day by being kept in the house. It was my business, while in the nursery, to dust all the furniture and the floor with a flannel mop made and kept for this purpose. The floors were all painted and varnished and very easily kept clean. Two hours and a half each day we spent with a priest, whom we were to call Father Darity. I do not know as I spell this and other names correctly, but I give it to the reader as it sounded to my ear. He appeared to take great pleasure in learning us to repeat the prayers and catechisms required by Priest Dow. He also gave us a variety of instructions in other things, enjoining in particular the most absolute obedience and perfect silence. He assured us that if we dared to disobey him in the least particular, he should know it, even if he was not present with us at the time. He said he knew all our thoughts, words, and actions, and if we did not obey, he should eat us with a grain of salt. I presume my reader will smile at this, and exclaim, How absurd! Yes, to you it is absurd but to the mind of a child who placed the utmost confidence 
in his veracity, it was an evidence that he was invested with supernatural powers. For myself I believed every word he said, and nothing would have tempted me to disobey him. Perfect obedience he considered the highest attainment, and to secure this the greatest of all virtues, no means were thought too severe. We were frightened and punished in every possible way. But, though Father Darity acted on the one great principle with the Romanists, that the end sanctifies the means, he was in general a much kinder man than Priest Dow. He urged us on with our catechism as fast as possible, telling us as a motive to greater diligence that the bishop was soon to visit us, and that we could not be admitted to his presence until we had our prayers and catechism perfectly. One day, when we were in the yard at play, I told one of the girls that I did not like to live there, that I did not like the people in the house, that I wished to return to my father, and I should tell him so the first time he came to see me. Then you like to live with your father, said she? I told her I did, for I could then do as I pleased, without the fear of punishment. She said that she did not like to live there any better than I did. I asked her why she did not go away, if she disliked to stay. She replied, I would like to go away well enough, if I had any friends to go to, but my father and mother are both dead, and I have no home but this. So you see, I must stay here if they wish me to. But there is one consolation. If we are good girls, and try to do right, they will be kind to us. I made no further remark, but the moment we returned to the house, she told the superior what I said taking good care not to repeat her own expressions, and leaving the superior to infer that she had made no reply. I saw at once by the stern look that came over the lady's face that she was very angry, and I would gladly have recalled those few hasty words had it been in my power to have done so. She immediately left the room, but soon returned with Priest Dow, his countenance also indicated anger, as he took hold of my arm and led me to a darkened room, in which several candles were burning. Here I saw three scenes, which I think must have been composed of images, pictures, and curtains. I do not pretend to describe them correctly. I can only tell how they appeared to me. The first was an image of Christ on the cross, with his arms extended as we usually see them in pictures. On his right hand was a representation of heaven, and on the left of hell. Heaven was made to appear like a bright, beautiful, and glorious place. A wall of pink colour surrounded it, and in the centre was a spring of clear water. In the midst of this spring stood a tree, bearing on every limb a lighted candle, and on the top the image of Christ and a dove. Hell was surrounded by a black wall, 
within which there was also a spring. But the water was very black, and beside it stood a black image, with horns on its head, a long tail, and a large cloven foot. The place where it stood was in deep shadow, made to resemble as neatly as possible clouds and darkness. The priest led me up to this fearful object, and placed me on one side of it, while he stood on the other. But it would turn away from him towards me, roll up its great eyes, open its mouth, and show its long white tusks. The priest said it turned from him, because he was a good man, and I was very wicked. He said that it was the devil, come up from the bottomless pit to devour me, and if I said such wicked things again, it would carry me off. I was very much frightened, for I then thought that all he said was true, that those image which I now know were strung on wires were really what they were made to represent. In fact, until I was fifteen years old, I really believed that the image I saw then was an evil spirit, but since that time I have been made to know that the priests themselves are the only evil spirits about the place. Priest Dow then led me back to the nursery and left me with the superior, but he soon came back, saying he knew what I was thinking about, that I had wicked thoughts about him, thought that he was a bad man, and that I wished to leave him and go to my father. Now this was all true, and the fact that he knew it frightened me accordingly. It was a sure proof that what Father Darity said was true. But how could I ever be safe if they could thus read the inmost secrets of my soul? I did dislike them all very much indeed, and I could not help it. How then could I avert the consequences of this deep aversion to convent life, since it could not be concealed? Was it possible for me so far to conquer myself as to love the persons with whom I lived? How many nights did I lie awake pondering this question, and resolving to make the effort? I was, of course, too young to know that it was only by shrewd guessing and a general knowledge of human nature that he was enabled to tell my thoughts so correctly. Now, said he, for indulging these dreadful thoughts, I shall take you back to the devil and give you up to him. I was frightened before, but I have no words to describe my feelings when he again led me back and left me beside the image, saying, as he closed the door, If the devil groans three times, and the Lord does not speak, you must stay here until tomorrow at this time. I trembled so that I could hardly stand, and when after a few moments a sound like a groan fell upon my ears, I shrieked in the extremity of terror. Footnote. Siui, formerly a Benedictine monk, giving an account of his imprisonment at Rome after his conversion, says, 
one evening after listening to a discourse filled with dark images of death i returned to my room and found the light set upon the ground i took it up and approached the table to place it there but what was my horror and consternation at beholding spread out upon it a whitened skeleton before the reader can comprehend my dismay it is necessary he should reflect for a moment on the peculiarities of childhood especially in a romish country where children are seldom spoken to except in superstitious language whether by their parents or teachers and domestics adopt the same style to answer their own purposes menacing their disobedient charges with hobgoblins phantoms and witches such images as these make a profound impression on tender minds leaving a panic terror which the reasoning of after years is often unable entirely to efface there can be no doubt but that this pernicious habit is the fruit of the noxious plant fostered in the vatican rising generations must be brought up in superstitious terror in order to render them susceptible to every kind of absurdity for this terror is the powerful spring employed by the priests and friars to move at their pleasure families cities provinces nations although in families of the higher order this method of alarming infancy is much discountenanced nevertheless it is impossible but that it should in some degree prevail in the nursery nor was it probable that i should escape this infection's malady having passed my whole days in an atmosphere charged more than any other with that impure miasma priestcraft then immediately i heard the question and it seemed to come from the figure of christ will you obey will you leave off sin i answered in the affirmative as well as i could for the convulsive sobs that shook my frame almost stopped my utterance i now know that when the priest left me he placed himself or an assistant behind a curtain close to the images and it was his voice that i heard but i was then too young to detect their treacherous practices and deceitful ways on being taken back to the superior i was immediately attacked with severe illness and had fits all night it seemed to me that i could see that image of the devil everywhere if i closed my eyes i thought i could feel him on my bed pressing on my breast and he was so heavy i could scarcely breathe i was very sick and suffered much bodily pain but the tortures of an excited imagination were greater by far and harder to bear than any physical suffering for long years after that image haunted my dreams and even now i often in sleep live over again the terrors of that fearful scene i was sick a long time how long i do not know but i became so weak i could not raise myself in bed 
and they had an apparatus fixed to the wall to raise me with. For several days I took no nourishment, except a teaspoonful of brandy and water, which was given to me as often as I could take it. I continued to have fits every day for more than two years, nor did I ever entirely recover from the effects of that fright. Even now, though years have passed away, a little excitement or a sudden shock will sometimes throw me into one of those fits. End of chapter 3